You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. All right, okay, well, that's better. You know, I'm not getting any more of those funny, uh, any of those funny space alien clicks. Not the, yeah, I'm right, I'm right beside the router now, so we're good. Okay, good. All right. Okay, but seriously, do you use video for stuff? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's this. This is gonna work just fine. This is a, a weird laptop. It's got a camera in the hinge, not up at the top like an Apple. So, so you kind of got to look just above the keyboard to look into this, or you have to and you have to aim it at your, yourself from from the hinge. Don't ask. Let's talk. Let's talk. Also, you can see it. Yeah, you can see that. Weird. The kids love it. Yeah. I don't even know if that goes on and off or not. It's okay, though. Do you do a lot of gaming? Not Online not gaming? Zero. You do, like, uh, Cabela's African Hunt? No, I don't, I don't do that, no. <laughs> no, there's no... I, in, in university, I played, a lo or played some computer games when they were, like, originally being invented. But uh, I haven't had a... And in high school, I played a lot of... Uh, Super NES and whatnot in between basketball mm. and football, but I have not gotten into video games at all, and I kind of feel like I might be missing the boat because they're getting more and more realistic. In fact, in a conversation with my older brother, who is still into video games, he's like, "You wouldn't believe how realistic the video games are." And at the time, we had moved to the farm a few years before, and one of the neighbor's sons—I was about—I was probably 27 or something—and one of the neighbor's sons was about 15, and he said, "Hey." You're new to the community. I heard you like you like hunting. My, my dad and all these farmers are too practical to go hunting. But we have this creek that runs through our, our farmland, and there's it's infested with beavers. Do you want to shoot beavers? I'm like, I, I can't see shooting beavers being that much fun. Anyway, I lost like two whole springs after dinner. <laughs> In the springtime after dinner, I'd get home, and I'd look at my wife and just drop my – like the phone would ring, and it would be Troy. And he'd be like, Mr. Singer, do you want to come shoot some beavers? Once I got there and saw it just goes for this creek just goes for miles and there's beavers everywhere like a it's a beaver you like like Jurassic Park where they see these there hundreds of beavers in a pond and up on the bank and like they were tame because they hadn't been shot at at all and I thought that this symbol of our nation we should spare it but there were actually hundreds of them and so every night we'd work through uh like we do. Like I was, I would uh, commentate like we were in a World War II live or first-person shooter simulation. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd clear areas. Like we'd go, we'd go half a mile a night, and then as soon as we were done all the areas on this farm that ran for a couple of miles, uh, we'd go back to the start, and there'd be more beavers right back where we had started our little killing spree. But uh, and it was like early on in in killing as a landowner, as a farmer. Because I thought, okay, these beavers have to get out of here because they were clearly just decimating this this forested area, 
um, that, the, that this guy's cattle would use uh, in the winter to get out of the wind and get down into the low areas. So the beavers had flooded it all. So he said, we, we, you know, we had tried to get a trapper in, but he, uh, there aren't that many trappers, and he doesn't check his traps very often because he's in his 70s. Uh, we got dynamite in. We got track hose to dig up their dams, and it seems like every time we dig up their dams, they just reproduce and make more lodges and more and bridge and, and dam more uh, sections of this Connor Creek. So he's like, the best option that the provincial wildlife uh, pest wildlife guy said is like, you just got to get someone in here to shoot him. I'm like, well, I make Troy and I may be your guys, and so the the owner's son and I, we went nuts. And then e each beaver that I shot, I'm like, well, geez, we should. That's there's a hide on that thing, and and then I'm drinking rye whiskey with the landowner after Troy has to get back in and do homework or whatever in the evenings. And he said, like, whoa, he says, yeah, I knew an old trapper. He'd pay, you know, you get ten bucks for the hide. So I learned all about. I joined the Alberta Trappers Association, and I was like, I can't let these magnificent creatures go to waste and so i would we try and retrieve them so there are all kinds of jokes about pencil diving for beavers and the beaver retriever was like my my nickname there uh <laughs> because i didn't want these things to go to waste and then some other fella like I, I was always into hunting but not obsessed with trophies and stuff but there's some trophy bear hunter that i worked with at the pulp mill and he said you know a, a bear's favorite food springtime bear for bait sets is are beavers and i'm like well i happen to I happen to have a chest, free a 36 cubic foot chest freezer <laughs> full of beavers. <laughs> and he's like, no way, that's like gold. It's like, that's your black bear heaven right there. So <coughs> anyway, and then the county paid us a bounty because it was a pest area, that legal land uh, area, you'd get $10 a tail. So Troy and I were getting $10 a tail for the tail, the beaver tails turned into the county. And then 20, or, well, I mean, a good hide was going for 60 bucks off the beaver if you skinned it nice and then uh boarded it nice you get 60 bucks for the hide but so we were getting 10 or 12 bucks for the hides <laughs> and then the carcasses <laughs> you get another 10 bucks for the carcasses uh if you sell them to the bear hunting guys so yeah and uh, the casters are worth a lot i don't know if you're yeah, doing Jesus that christ huh there's another story right there just that maybe is for another <laughs> another friggin uh podcast another story because you know the caster is different from the anal gland <laughs> i'm like <laughs> You don't want to find out. You don't want to find that out like too late. You don't want to. You don't want it to be the fourth one that you'd, you've got that all wrong. The anal gland. <laughs> the, so there's an anal secretion gland that I would I'd say lubes their poop, and uh, that gland is not the castor gland. Totally different. That, that's not the one that they make perfume with. No, the cat. <laughs> no, no. I was like, how, I'm reading. I'm reading in a book, and like, I think I've got this wrong because this can't possibly be. And it's like, oh, it kind of looks like the picture. So line drawings of uh, beavers' rear ends don't do a lot of justice to differentiate between differentiate differentiate between the anal whatever gland and the castor gland. Cla castor gland is unmistakable once you know what it is. Uh, it's not the other stuff back there. But who I dug around and two, and I, I'd say about forty too many beavers. And like, it almost caused a divorce because <laughs> I had <laughs> I had these hides out over my my thigh. And just in jeans, and I was fleshing these. Like, there's a verb you also didn't know that you were going to know when you were a young lad growing up in the city that you wouldn't figure that you'd. There's a verb called fleshing to yeah. flesh, the verb to flesh. And uh, <coughs> it's best that most people never find out what fleshing means because it's an appalling, especially a real oily beaver skin. It'll get a smell in your hands and into your jeans, and it'll get it so your thighs smell like beaver juices <laughs> when you're fleshing right on your. 
right on your cotton jeans. That's all garbage. That's all fit for the fire pit after you fleshed a few beeves. <laughs> anyway, that's how it, that's how you know how did it all start and where are you now? That was uh, that was probably ten thousand kills ago. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Ten thousand dead animals ago. And uh, I, I really wanted to get good at skinning them well, and I didn't know how to sharpen it. I mean, I knew how to sharpen a knife the way that uh, a hunter, you know, a one, one trip a year hunter kind of knows how to sharpen a knife. Uh, but I got better at it and then kind of thought, wait a minute, these animals are all over the place. And some, in some situations, they're a pest and they're, over, they're just sort of overrunning uh, certain modified landscapes because we've, we've screwed up the natural ecosystem. So there's an overabundance of mice in grain fields. So there's an overabundance of foxes and coyotes. And then uh, we've kind of cut down all the trees so the and, and drained all the sloughs so the beavers... Uh, when they get a foothold somewhere, they, they all concentrate in that area and go nuts if they have mm. the, the right conditions. So uh, it's kind of an interesting or maybe not interesting intro into me growing up in the city, then moving to the farm and starting to understand some of the problems in human interactions with wildlife and wild areas uh, in a way that someone who who doesn't live on the land and, and sort of like part of the community of ecosystems would, would fully get that there's yeah, a, lot more, a lot more gray areas than you'd think. And, and especially, especially in the agriculture zones, like that's very, very different, right? Like you said, it is, it is altered landscape, but it creates amazing habitat for some species. Like you get these, these ones go down and these ones go up. And because we're producing food <clears throat> and like we've seen in some of your, your shows or whatever, there's just like, um, like peas and lentils all over the ground and the ducks and geese come in and there's corn and like, it's just natural spillage. Like it just, the machines can't get vacuum everything up. And it really creates as, I guess, as artificial environment, this habitat that some species thrive in. And I was really interesting what you said, like about, you know, mice and bulls go nuts, so coyotes and foxes go nuts, right? Like it is, a, it is an ecosystem that's that's sustaining wild animals, like living amongst us and in, in the egg zone, but kind of in a very like <laughs> weird way. Uh, and and the beavers too. That's that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it was wow. highly it was highly addicted. And then my brother tells me about this uh, first person shooter, like the uh world war ii and he said it's he's like it's so realistic you can almost smell the gunpowder you know and i'm like i i play a game like that but with a real rifle in a swamp <laughs> mov <laughs> moving my body you know moving my body and diving for i usually come home soaked to the nipples because i've i've had to go in to retrieve these beavers to get all my to get the trophy b day uh, yeah <clears throat> it's it was it's b day yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah Gonna get rich from the manal glands. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's still a stash up in the cookie jar, up in, the, in the bread, in the bread cupboard. There's a cookie jar full of. Be it's not anal glands. Give though. away, give a few away for Christmas presents. You know, yeah. you don't have to buy something from a store. <laughs> hey, ma. Yeah. Apparently, this is attractive in the big cities and Paris and stuff. Apparently, you rub this yeah. on your skin. It's gonna make a guy popular. That smell. <laughs> <laughs> Well, fun, like funny enough, so then fast forward, we go, we're doing this from the wild filming and we go up to near Grand Prairie and Brad Rabies, Rabby, Brad Rabby's farm. 
Uh, and that, that episode, that was back in season two or three, we did a beaver trapping episode because Brad, as a kid gr- growing up in the bush like that on the farm, he would trap beavers for hides for like his spending money in, in junior high and high school. So, so um, I didn't bring any castor glands, but he had a few. And he showed us how his, his dad and all the old men had shown him how do you, you dry them and you crush them up. And you make a, a lure, like a scent, uh, it's beaver caster scent, to yep. take the, he- the human smell off your steel traps. Okay, uh-huh. yep. And, and make the male beavers think that there's another, uh, like an unfamiliar beaver in their, in their little pond. In, and, and lure them into a, into a trap set, yep. That's right, yep. yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I'd probably sitting on a fortune of uh, beaver caster, really. Hmm. There you go. Yeah. Huh. Crazy. Wild times. Hey, everybody. It's uh, Mark Hall, your host. Yeah, and it's Curtis Hall, your co-host. So maybe you, the listener, has a beaver problem. The only way to get into your beaver problem is with some gnarly, knobby, off-road mud tires or a sweet mud rig to get into these beaver ponds well lucky enough for you alpine toyota out of cranberg bc is the title sponsor of the hunter conservationist podcast so if you want to go get them beavers give the folks down at alpine toyota a call to get your truck rigged up with (laughs) the best way to get into those beaver ponds and what are you going to do with those leftover beaver ponds well you're going to go hunt ducks in them of course which Alpine Toyota is also donating money to Ducks Unlimited Canada, who is making more ducks to land in your beaver ponds that there's no more beavers in because you've first-person shootered all the beavers out of there, just like Jeff has. So give Alpine Toyota a call. Uh, Big thanks to them, supporters of Ducks Unlimited Canada and the Hunter Conservationist podcast. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Alpine Toyota. Yeah. That's, there's nothing truer that's been said about a Toyota. Oh, absolutely. Fantastic trucks. That was my first, first ever truck. Um, hey, folks, uh, we got Jeff Singer on the show from the wild. Uh, you were on, you and Kevin Coswan were on last fall. We had a great conversation, a lot of fun times. And uh, a little while ago, not that long ago, a week or two ago, Curtis and I are chatting and kind of talking about you know, hunting and trapping and killing animals and just kind of, you know, the way an animal dies, what we're trying to do as a hunter and way people perceive that. And Curtis kind of was talking about like the way nature operates, you know, with, with death and, um, you know, the whole nature is metal, you know, stuff that's on social media and, and like just how, gruesome like nature can can really be and we just thought hey this would be a really cool topic to talk about uh you know the ethics and philosophy of killing um hunters anglers and also from somebody in the profession of putting food on on family's plates so we're just like none other than get jeff on the show and and talk about this so uh it all started apparently with with beavers that needed to be controlled and uh 
and then that's led you to where you are now and so tell us a little bit about what what you're doing professionally on the farm you run an abattoir for sure uh hey thanks for having me on guys it's fun it's fun to talk it's fun to be part of the community it is you know uh and yeah topic uh topic of uh death you know the terminal performance uh that'd be a good name for this uh terminal performance uh yeah so starting like out it. as as a kid uh did a bit of hunting grew up in a city in edmonton there and hunted a week maybe or two in the year uh anyway then fast forward to we moved uh, we were living in calgary had a kid and we thought we would raise our first child rur rurally so we made a deliberate choice to move about an hour northwest of edmonton onto a farm ultimately and so that was 18 years ago <coughs> and then we when we had the farm there was this gateway livestock where some some laying hens and then now we've got a farm with a mixed livestock farm it was kind of for fun for the kids but it became really fun for us to understand what elements were important to make good food like so what you fed your chickens uh, affected the quality of their eggs and then what do you do with chickens when it's when they're not laying uh, laying anymore and winter's coming um, so and then of course living on the farm I did a lot more hunting they go off and join the beavers <laughs> that's right one of the the springtime events here I was introduced by a neighbor's kid and that was his his family farm uh, was a beaver infestation uh, the county identified it as an infestation and I thought all that was pretty silly <coughs> but he asked me if I would come uh, kind of supervise him and we could shoot beavers and I, th I thought well okay and then I got completely ad addicted to uh, not just the little kid funness of running around shooting guns and, and you know trying to score hits on these moving targets, but uh, kind of understanding the imbalance that had happened between nature and the beaver population, and like w why and why um, in you know uh, agriculture infringing on wildlands meant that the beavers when they found a spot like this creek that were they're really going to do well in why, why their their population exploded <coughs> and then sort of the problems that caused for the farmer and other solutions were dynamite or, or trapping and, and both sort of failed so it just it just became a you know get some kids with guns and and rifle shoot these beavers to have like the, mo the, the least impact or the least negative impact on the on the environment would just be to sniping these beavers out and thinning the thinning their populations down so Troy and I did that but um, uh, and that's kind of around about the time I started thinking about sort of the ethics of, of killing, uh, starving the beavers out or, or pulling their dams or, or disrupting their food caches in winter and having them starve out versus ethically harvesting. And then the, 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 the really mechanical, technical bits of harvesting uh, a beaver and recovering it, uh, and, and this is maybe a good species to talk about because you know, other animals are, are like varmints, like gophers, y you might not want to harvest your, or touch. If you sh just shoot them, it's more a gopher shooting. And then, uh, you know, other animals like big game species might be harvested for their, for their meat or for their rack. Uh, but beavers are unique in that, and th and that it, it just sort of, there's no obligation for us to recover them. There's no obligation to use the meat or use the hides. But the more I thought about what we were doing and kind of being a softie, I thought, well, Sure, these beavers have to be uh, thin, thinned out of, of, of their own population for their own good, 
and for the good of the farmer to kind of bring things back into balance. But, and th th but the technical bit I wanted to get to is like you actually have to place a, a bullet directly into their skull. If you shoot too far forward, you, you only sh disrupt their sinuses. And if they have a sinus problem, uh, they can dive back underwater and, and, and you'll lose the carcass. They'll, they'll go underwater and wrap their little hands around some weeds at the bottom and they'll stay underwater and you'll never see them again. So you have to be really good at shot placement. And uh, fast forward 18 years, I'm the owner of a slaughterhouse in the community. Uh, we've had the slaughterhouse now for almost 12 years, 11 years, completing year number 11, I think, um, in June. And we have our mixed farm. And sh shot placement and humane killing has become uh, you know, a really important part of what, what my profession is, is, is built around. So we cut meat, butcher, make jerky, and all that stuff too. I did the sausage recipes many years ago that we're still using today at the, at, at the s s slaughterhouse and meatpacking plant that, that we own. Uh, but but the, the job that I still do, because I think that it's really important that it's done well, uh, is operate the rifles to kill the animals to move them forward through the barn when live animals get dropped off twice a week, to, to move them up into the knockbox and then put a, a bullet in their brain and then bleed them ethically, humanely, so they're stunned with the bullet when their brains are scrambled. Uh, and then we bleed them and then we hang them and skin them and gut them and split them and, and put them in the cooler. So that's the process. We're doing something like 20 beef equivalents per week, something like that. Uh, and a beef equivalent, this is just my own lingo, uh, three pigs is a beef and five lambs is a beef. And that's kind of related to the amount of time that it takes in the on the processing side to process and, and, and push them through. <coughs> so there's some combination of usually beef, lamb, pigs. Um, we also slaughter bison uh, and elk at Sangudo Custom Meat Packers. That's the name of the place. So um, we do everything, uh, nothing with feathers, but pretty much everything with, with fur um, that's, that's an edible food species. So, so yeah. Um, uh, th th sort of working at the slaughterhouse has given me a weird uh, or maybe a unique perspective on uh, hunting and mm. killing animals yeah. in a, no a non-controlled environment, uh, which I like to do, uh, I like to do uh, on the weekends when I'm not at work. You, you like to go out and... Yeah. <laughs> I, I kill for money uh, professionally and then I kill for fun. That's my hobby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it sounds awful, but uh, I I think that I've said before, uh, in inevitably at a at a food function or or a slow food, um, I, I meet someone new and they're like, uh, "What do you do?" And I'll say, "I have a slaughterhouse," and I'm a vegan, you know. And I, I, I it doesn't matter. It's like a guy who hates cats, and the cat always comes and snuggles around your ankles and jumps in your lap when you dislike cats. The cats know. I think vegans know, and they're like, "Oh, I'm a vegan." And but but sort of my uh, response to that is always, oh good, like there should be more vegans. I would be too if I didn't actually kill the animals, and I mean that wholeheartedly and truthfully because being in the food processing business for as long as I have and having some lights on in the house, like the ability to observe and uh, think, and think critically, uh, there are corners that can be cut in the processing and production of food and livestock, live all the way to a, a, a slice of bologna in your frying pan. Um, but there, there are corners that can be cut uh, that are atrocious and that should never, there are sort of certain, certain rules that should never uh, be violated or certain sort of, th there are, I think there are elements in food processing that, uh, that it's best that people don't know about. 
so I commend vegans and vegetarians, uh, you know, and say, like, you, it, meat is delicious. It's, it's great. You should try it, um, provided you're involved in the processing and the, the harvesting of that meat, or at least some of the meat that you eat on an annual basis, so that you can uh, kind of have a basis or foundation for understanding uh, about the ethics related to the taking of lives in order for you to eat, you know? Yeah, yeah. Huh. That'd be an interesting one to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> those those well, parties, and <laughs> they probably all don't go very smoothly. The conversations no. about oh no 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 actually <clears throat> like it it doesn't usually it kind of avoids a a, a fighting like a like a fist fight or or, or you know like a, a con it's a it, it diffuses a confrontation because I'm like I commend I commend people that don't uh, produce and process their own food to not choose to eat it actually like I think it's a great way to go. And I think that uh, kind of just like waiting for your butler, you know, to, to bring you your food uh, and then speaking about it like you have some some knowledge uh, that a lot of folks are like that. They're, they're, they're on their uh, high horse talking about the ethics of food in, in to one direction or another, like t towards uh, the ethics of veganism and avoiding meat or uh, as proponents of meat, uh, even a cattle producer. Uh, may be a proponent to uh, the ethics or whatever ab about eating meat and, and promoting beef, let's say, but has never harvested his own beef, can't do it, can't even be around when the guy, you know, when the butcher comes or the mobile slaughter guy comes, can't be around it. And I think that that is also a bit disgenuine. Like y if you produce it and you're in that industry, <coughs> it's something that you should probably have some experience um, with in order to speak with just some knowledge. Otherwise, just it's best if, you know, if if you don't have first-hand uh, experience, then maybe just keep your just keep your ideas to yourself. <laughs> uh, <coughs> that, that's a great bumper sticker for this day and age. Right? I would say it applies. Yeah. <laughs> that would yeah. that would kill social media <coughs> if if people uh, instituted that mantra. Yeah. Um, now, so walk us this. Well. We'll talk a little bit about like the um, the food processing industry and what you do, and then kind of transition that to hunting and some of the the differences and stuff. But kind of walk us a little bit through um, in the slaughterhouse, like the humane treatment of an animal that's coming in that's going to be killed, um, how it's treated, how it's led in. I know you've got this thing like with the curved shoot that comes in that's got something to do with how they see things. Um, what what is done so that it's quick and it's fast and why do you do that and oh for sure well uh when my my business partner kevin meyer and i bought the place uh tw 12 years i don't know what i'm saying 12 years ago in 2010 um it was designed in 1970 in the 1970s the animal handling and layerage area were some horse panels with a mud uh, in mud pens and they had square corners and you had to get these animals to walk into a building through a man door and then around a corner all 90 degree corners with just swing gates that were just horizontal iron pipe gates you know and so we realized right away that the temperament of the animals that came to the plant at the time I mean at the time and us being green at the whole process the animals were either only ever handled by humans to have their testicles removed without uh, without um, numbing, without a, 
a numbing agent, uh, and their horns burned out of their head. Like they're either uh, like abused by people, or um, or they were pets. And so, so that was sort of the spectrum of of so, so that the animals in that sort of an environment, like of these horizontal gates with big spaces between the gates, um, they they would have a uh, like a flight or fight response. Um, so they would bolt, they would take one look at us or smell us, and they would bolt to the other end of the pen, and they'd smash headlong into the steel gate because they, it would disappear for them, or so I felt. They'd smash, and then they'd slip in the mud and the shit and fall down. Their noses would be bleeding, and they'd be freaking out. Or the fight response that they'd see us, and they'd come charging straight to the front of the pen and come crashing into the gates, and it would scare the bejesus out of you because snot and blood and spit would come flying off these 2,000 pound animals and you're just six inches away and you just hope that the, g <laughs> that the gates held. <laughs> They're pretty <laughs> rusty. So, so within, by year two, I think, or year one or two, uh, we had put in some grant funding applications to improve the handling system. And the government at the time, um, there, there was a big push, there was money available, 50% uh, grant matching to improve the handling system. So we wanted these animals to be a lot lower stress um, because that reduced stress for us. Um, we also had our asses handed to us by these animals a lot of times, being green and working them out of the pen once they decided they either wanted to kill you or they wanted to run from you um, meant that uh, we got gored and kicked and stamped and trampled and thrown uh, every kill day. So every kill day was, was a rodeo and getting the animals just to come get their heads out of a corner and like go around a corner um, sometimes would stall the kill day for half an hour, 20 minutes, um, just to get an animal to come around the corner. And then as, uh, as frustrations uh, increased, you'd, you'd want to take more and more extreme actions. So you go from like waving a bag on the end of a stick to, to, uh, like to annoy them or to scare them. So a, chase, a flexible chase stick just over their heads to a rattle paddle to now you're slapping them on the butt with a rattle paddle to like where's the spark wand to give them a spark and then that was all like man if, if you started a, a fight that animal's gonna win and so we would just back off and go and make coffee and have a coffee <laughs> but it meant that <laughs> in the olden days we would do like six beef in an eight-hour shift and that would be a big deal because there's so much time spent moving the animals up so we met a guy who was farming elk for the el for the elk velvet trade just south of San Gudo a guy called Don Bamber and we, we knew that he farmed elk, and we said, we want to build a handling system that will take any kind of animal that comes to us, from little wee pigs, uh, for barbecue pigs, all the way up to domestic elk and, and, and bison. And Don said, come take a look at our handling facility that we d I think he designed um, to handle the most recently domesticated animal in North America, the, the, the majestic elk. And so his design was absolutely... I, I read Temple Grandin's books. This is Temple Grandin was on Oprah Winfrey, and she's a huge animal humane, uh, humane handling advocate. She is autistic or something, and so she could walk through an animal handling system for the gigantic meat packers in North America and suggest improvements like better lighting and um, uh, better lighting, paint colors, uh, curves, curves instead of 90 degree corners. So I, I read all that stuff and I thought, good, but but I wanted that we we wanted to be able to do the best. And, and enter Don Bamber in this elk handling system. So it's all based on wood panel, like uh, two by fours, uh, vertical, wood panel walls and gates that curved radius, curved corners, swing gates and guillotine gates that slide in between panels. So if you can imagine uh, the haunted mansion at Disneyland and you're in the elevator and you to move the, 
the people enjoying Disneyland's Haunted Mansion through that through the spaces in this theme park, they would just sort of change the wall. <laughs> they would just somehow <laughs> change the walls and the shape of the room around you, and then that would get the people to move forward and kind of explore with their natural curiosity the, the next room. And when, when we saw Don's uh, elk handling facility, that's what it made me think of. Like these animals are like, wait a minute, that there was a wall there before, and then it just now there's not. So there's a little view slot at the about a six six feet in height, and you can just sort of wiggle your fingers in the view slot, and that'll freak animals out enough to go to the opposite corner of the pen. But because they can't see you, it's not all horizontal pipes. It's not mostly air between you and the animal. They they are feel comfortable in their pen, and they don't want to attack you or or run away from you. They just see a, a certain amount of you uh, through the view slot. Now all this is really important to move animals uh, quickly. Uh, humanely, efficiently, and keep their stress low. So I remember we installed this system. Th it's all under a roof, too. We put a roof over it. We put a cement floor under it. We heated the cement floor um, so that they feel calm and they're, they're not slipping on ice. They're, they're and we shovel it out so they have grip and traction, and they're really calm. The pens are eight foot by eight foot, so they can turn all the way around, and we can keep them in the cohorts of animals that they come in with. So we can keep up to eight animals or six animals per pen, so they're always with other animals. The Temple Grandin system was all based on shoots so that the multi-billion dollar food or meat packers didn't have to make that many changes. And sort of the, the rodeo shoot concept of single file, animals in a line uh, with metal panels 32 inches wide or 28 inches wide on either side of the animal so the animal couldn't turn around. I, I watched animals handled like that at the rodeo and the egg, uh, the, the egg exhibitions and stuff. And like, that's not humane. It would be really expensive to change it, but we were kind of starting from less than zero with these stupid horse panels out in the mud. So um, we could do anything, and we chose to do eight foot by eight foot cubes with slide gates and swing gates in each cube. Um, <laughs> so we installed the system. I, I could just tell stories all night, you guys, but uh, we installed the system, and, and uh, everything's supposed to work according to plan. And we're ready to move the first animal into the knockbox. So I got into the barn, and I look in the little view slot at six feet. And I scream like, oh, fuck. Like, I swear, I swear a lot. Sorry, sorry to the sponsors. I run into the barn and I, I'm screaming like, it's gone, it's gone. Oh, my God, it got out somehow. And they're like, how did it get out? I'm like, I don't know, all the gates are pinned and latched and chained. And like, I don't know how it got out. And so we run back to the pen and we look in the slot and then look down. And this big old cow that we have up on deck to be next to be killed is laying down on the heated floor, chewing her cud. <laughs> and we're like, well, <laughs> it works. Like, she's so comfortable. She's just like, oh, a heated floor, a nice roof, good ventilation. It's well lit. I think I'll have a little nap. What, <laughs> what could go <laughs> wrong? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, jeez. So moving those animals up and uh, the handling system now uh, with me, I mean, we all do all jobs, but you can kind of have a point one time of, of a person's time is spent moving animals through the system. And my daughters and I can, ki uh, and one hired man, uh, we can kill a beef every 12 minutes. So that's the new time, the new all-time high, like fastest time, to move an animal from standing in a pen chewing their cud or s having a nap, to to wake wakey wakey Bessie, and then we get it up onto the ramp, and it's shots and bled and and split and skinned and hung and weighed and in the cooler in in 12 minutes. Wow. With Holy. no with no stress, uh, like. You know, like all these elements to minimize stress. The knock box is a, a padded box with walls that go up and down on hydraulics and in and out on hydraulics. So we can size the knock box to the animal um, so that the operator or, sh or the knacker man, the shooter, 
is on a catwalk on the side of the box that goes, uh, the side of the wall that goes up and down. So I reach in over the top and can find where, where I want to put the bullet on the animal. And the animal can turn around. So they'll be like, oh, I don't like this. I'm going to turn around. And then they, they have the freedom of movement to turn around. We can squeeze the wall into them and give them a little hug. Little, I call it a little, uh, little struggle snuggle. That's what we'll have, a little <laughs> struggle snuggle on the animal. They apply a little hydraulic pressure, but generally we don't need to do, to, to do that and restrain the animal at all because I'm quick with the rifle and can get a bullet just in the, right in the, like, uh, in the right spot to completely obliterate their brains. Center, center of the brain, above center the eyes, of the brain, yeah. Yeah, higher forehead. Than, hi, higher than you'd think, you know, uh, higher up than you'd think, but not too high. Because your, your, nasal, your nasal cavities, even on us, kind of go up like above your eyebrows a bit there, right? Exactly. Gotcha. So. Yeah. So huh. it's in, you know, you have a 2,500, we have these big, uh, these big heavy fats coming in off uh, feed, uh, a custom feed yard guy does these Wagyu's that are, they hang 1,300 pounds. So live weight is like 23, 2,400 pounds. And when they hit the floor, the whole, like the, my, my wall shakes that I'm standing on, cause there's so much weight there, but, uh, 22 Magnum is my preferred round by far. It's got, some people say it's got too much powder. It's got too much pep. But I'd rather have too much pep uh, than too little pep. When you're Just a 22, eh? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> uh, huh. 22 long rifle and tw uh, for a long time for for cattle, and the old timers swear by a 22 long rifle, and then 22 shorts for uh, uh, little pigs and lambs or, or sheep. Gotcha. Yeah. But we upped it to 22 Magnum so that there was just no. It just takes the maybe the 22 Magnum. I think there was a brand that says takes the maybe out of varminting. Takes the maybe <laughs> out of and it takes the maybe out of like 22 magnum will shoot through a phone book you know so yeah so it's a lot of, it's a lot of uh, energy released into their brain all at, like all at once and it's spent within the first four or five inches like through the skull and it splatters their brains uh, now it's not to say that there aren't uh miss shots so a beef twitches at the last second and you get a glancing a glancing a poor penetration or a glancing blow um, sometimes we'll underestimate the thickness of the hide and the head, like on a on a, a proud cut bull. So it'll come in, and the the uh, manifest the, the truckers' manifestos or the shipping manifestos say this thing's a steer. And so I'll be like, well, I got a 22 long rifle up on the ball, uh, like up on the wall with me. I'll shoot with a 22 long rifle. It's a steer, and then it takes two or three bullets to get to crack through its its skull plate, and then we go to skin it, and there's a testicle hiding up in its abdomen. And it's got an inch, an inch of hide over its skull plate. And you're like, oh, it was proud cut. That testosterone makes a, like a, a, a big bull or a bison or a bison bull will take a 30-30. So we generally have a 30-30 lever action for the big heavies. And Kay. we at the booking, uh, our booking staff in the front, when they get, when she gets a call, uh, she'll say, is it an old cow, young cow? Like, what are we, what will we be processing for you? So so we kind of have a heads up that if a big bull's coming in, I'll make sure they have 30, a 30-30 or a higher caliber rifle. Um, some plants use a 410 with slugs. That's a cute, cute, expensive and hard to find 410 slugs. But I have a 30-30 and lots of 30-30 rounds. So um, also pistols are not legal on the kill floor. Uh, even though you, well, you can get a restricted license and you can, and I think they would be the best. To be honest, I think that would be the best thing that we could use. They're the safest. Um, but they're not legal. And man, during the time that we were looking at humane killing, we went we went lock, stock, and, and barrel, uh, ha, ha, uh, and <laughs> bought 
and bought these captive bolt stuns. So there, you could choose a pneumatic or um, um, a, like a, a blank a blank charge that would put a, a 30 caliber stainless steel rod into their heads. And it was actuated with uh, a, a custom 22 blank that you would buy from the same company that made. One was in the format of a pistol, a uh, big heavy pistol, and one was in the format of, uh, it looked like a lightsaber for the very heavy game like Bison and Bulls. Um, and I almost broke my wrist many, many times because you had to touch the unit, you had, you had to hover the unit right above the animal's head and, and the whole, the lightsaber device that shot the rod for the heavy animals is maybe just an eight inch thing, about four inches or three and a half inches in diameter and eight inches long. So you had to get this thing right up against the animal's skull and then press the button, they would shoot this rod in seven and a half inches or something like that. If you were two inches off the head, now it's only going in five and a half, you know, and if, if you're six inches off the head, you just glance it off. The so, and with a 22 charge, even though they made different grades of charges, um, it was inconsistent at best. It was designed in the UK, and I think they have uh, more consistently sized animals, and they probably have specialty plants that deal with big bulls. Um, here, a plant needs to be able to kill everything from like a, a, a 35 pound pig or a 35 pound lamb all the way up and rabbits, you know, all the way up to big bison bulls that are over 10 years old. So the, the skull thickness and all of that is completely different. Also, mm -hmm. if the animal whips its head around it, th where I almost broke my wrist a few times is where you have this pistol in your hand and you go, you know, you reach in and you, you lean over and you put it close to the animal's skull and pull the trigger. The rod goes in and then they twitch their head and the rod is still in. So, so the gun <laughs> gets, right. the, the pistol gets pulled out of your hand or through your hand, and now your pistol is down. The animal collapses and it's got. And a now gun they're armed. It's got a gun stuck to its head. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was not cool. And I'm like, this isn't cool. I'm not doing this anymore. And uh, and went back to the to the rifle. The rifle has some reach, and I can discharge a 22 Magnum uh, while the barrel is six or eight or ten inches away from the animal's head and, st and, and still hit it and, and, and press the lights out button. So in the case of dangerous animals or really ornery animals that, wanna, that want to attack, it's, it's best to have that extra range. So, <coughs> I mean, this, this is a super interesting <coughs> kind of part of this conversation. This is kind of where hunting diverges a little bit now, right? So, so you're talking about <clears throat> um, like a, a super refined industrial operation. Um, you've got to move animals through. It's a business. Um, there's <clears throat> efficiency and speed and numbers, and you know <clears throat> I understand all that. <clears throat> and then there's a uh, and, and then the humane part of it, the humane killing. So the animals aren't stressed. It's not affecting them. It's just like, it's, it's a humane operation. I, I get that. And it, and it's all based on the premise of this instant brain death. <clears throat> but now go out on the weekend <laughs> um, and, and hunting. So they're in their natural environments. Like sometimes they're stressed because they see us or they run, or sometimes they're just happily munching away on a, you know, the side of a seismic line in the evening or, you know, or whatever, and boom, we shoot them or something. And, you know, like life is good, you know, for them, <clears throat> you know, up to, to the point where the bee stings them. But our, our mechanism of death and hunting, like the, to, to cause that death is is different we talk about humane kills in hunting but the most humane 
way, I think that we're taught and, you know, that, that I believe anyways, is, is that bullet through the lungs. You're looking for that, that, um, side shot, double lungs in and out causes the, the hemorrhaging in the lungs. But then the big thing is you've broken the, the seal of the thoracic cavity and it collapses. Um, and then they, they expire because the, you know, the bellows aren't working and it's not circulating the blood to the brain. But as you know, th that can take a little bit, uh, you know, a lung shot, <clears throat> but they're, they're going to die. Um, yep. but it, it takes a little bit of time and, and, but that's, that's, that's a humane shot in, in hunting. And you talked about earlier about like with the beavers, you know, like the proper placement in the skull. And it's the same with a deer, right? Which is why they always teach us in hunting is <clears throat> headshots are not necessarily an ethical shot because right. you've got this little brain, you know, that makes up 30% of this, the space of the head. And then 70% is this big snout. And, and, and at any distance, like if you hit it in the snout, it might die eventually from infection or starvation or whatever like that, but you're not going to recover that animal. It's not going to be quick. It's not, it's not going to be humane. So we kind of like work away from, <clears throat> at least with the ungulate species and, and bears and stuff from the instant brain death to, to the, to the lung shots. Is, is that an issue for you? Like knowing that you can do this in a split second at work, but it might take 60 or 90 seconds for a long shot animal to collapse. Yeah, no, it's, this is a really interesting uh, discussion and I hope your viewers have a, have a, have the stomach for it. And it's, I think it's, it's cool and mature of you to think that this is a topic that we should talk about, to broach the subject that a lot of people don't like talking about. I think it's important, but, uh, you're absolutely right that if if during your job you can press the lights out button by putting a bullet in an animal's head every time then what does the slaughterhouse man do when he goes hunting and i shoot center mass all the time i think that the teaching uh, in hunter education and what you what you talked about and the reasons that you talk about them you for, you, you didn't mention that the, they move their heads around their, yeah. their heads move they, they, <coughs> their heads are on a swivel as they're adjust you know they move their heads for uh, to, they're to down grazing, then they snap yeah. their head up and they're looking around for, is there a cougar watching me and then back down? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the most humane uh, uh, <coughs> shot is the center mass shot. Uh, and I think that they're teaching that well and, and they're teaching the right thing. There are some hot shots uh, that want a sniper kill and shoot in, in the head. And I think that that results in a lot more wounding and, and uh, I mean, and clean misses. But, but I think a lot of gruesome, gruesome, uh, uh, you I respect the animals like s so much that it, it's giving its life so that I can eat. Um, I don't want to risk that uh, to having tortured it to death by blowing its bottom jaw off. Yeah, uh, we've come yeah. we've come across a, a dead deer in in the bush like that growing up, and it was one of the worst things I'd ever seen. Uh, and then just imagining what that might be like. Uh, so the animals move their uh, heads to, to see and smell and to, to, to adjust their ears in the case of a deer uh, or ungulate species. So And then, man, ba bears uh, are built. There's I have a whole bear story because I do so much of killing. 
um, we had a, a bait set up for coyotes in the far tree lawn in our farm. And in the springtime, uh, in the springtime, I, I saw a bear hit, was on the, was on the pile in June on our farm. And, uh, so long story short, I put a stock on this bear and it was kind of a low, low stress. Uh, the bear did not see me. So I had all kinds of time. So I got right up close to it and, uh, and I put it around through its center of mass and then harvested the bear. Uh, the kids, kids and I went and found it and got it back to the house. And of course I boiled the skull and it's the, uh, the to, to put as a, I have no trophy skulls, but I just keep the skulls of, of, of all the bears when I have the time because I think they're really neat. Anyway, this bear had been shot by a, a 12-gauge slug through the sinus cavity. The sinus cavity had collapsed, and the slug had bounced off and fallen out uh, off of the skull plate on this big old sow. And there was a complete hole in the bone that had started suturing itself back together because the bear made it to hibernation with this wound in its head. And the hair grew over and the skin grew over and everything was absolutely normal on the outside of the barrel, uh, the outside of the bear. But there was a one-inch circle cut through the sinus cavity, like through the plate in front of the skull. So some other farmer had shot this problem bear in the head directly with the unmistakable diameter of a 12-gauge slug. And, and, and didn't it, kill it. It, it didn't kill it. She just had, she must have bled out of her nose for weeks. But it, but that it speaks to the resilience of the bear. But I I couldn't believe it's I mean, so and and the the geometry of the bear's head suggests like don't shoot it in the head, uh, the bullet's gonna glance and you're just gonna have a pissed off and wounded bear. So in 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 the you know in the ungulate situation you have an animal that's gonna starve and get torn apart by cows and wolves, or die from infection a slow grisly death. In the case of a of a predator, um, you're gonna have an angry predator. <laughs> And they'll also <laughs> die a, a horrible tortured death, probably get pulled apart by uh, by wolves and coyotes also. Uh, so center mass, that's the part of the the part of the animal that moves the least. And even when it's when a deer is, is running, and we do not advocate for taking running shots, but that's what's steady. That's where the saddle goes on the horse because it's this between the shoulders. That's that's the part that's not moving. The, you know, back end is going up and down and the head is going up and down. Um, but but the part of the animal that stays most steady is the center of mass. Yeah, I mean it's <clears throat> it it's a concept that goes that's in sports. Yeah, you know. That's right. So if you're you got an opponent, or whatever. Like if you're if you're watching um, the chest, the yeah. the center of mass, um, the head can fake you out. I think I saw uh, an interview with a famous boxer um, a little while ago, and the the person said, "Where do you look when you're boxing the opponent? Do you look him in the eyes?" And he's like, he goes like, "No, I look at um, like I think he said his chest, because he can he can see the instantaneous movement when the the punch is coming, um, and and then he can react to it because he said he said he's never going to knock me out with his head, yeah. so, so he has no reason to look him in the eyes." Yeah. Um, Football, you know, you're, you're watching the guy in chest and uh, his chest. If you're a hockey player and your defense and you're skating backwards, if you're looking at the puck, if you're looking at the guy's feet, his head, his hands, you know, you, you get made a fool of on the ice. You watch the center of mass. Law enforcement officers are taught that's where you shoot because it's the only part of the body that can't, that can't fake you, right? That's so right. it's like all those principles yeah. translate in, into hunting. Um, you you know what you just said. Then that, that being said, uh, it's it can be brutal. Uh, a lung sh I shot a lung shot cow elk uh, with Kevin on a from the wild trip, and uh, you know caught her broadside. You know she's running or she's trotting towards the cut line that I was standing on, and she stopped just 
at, before coming out of the bush onto the cut line, smelled the air, and I was downwind. It worked out great. She stepped onto the cut line, and I was already lined up, and then just snurp and, and caught her right through the ribs behind the shoulder. Perfect shot. Bl I watched blood spray out both sides, and she, she ran into the bush, and she was so stunned. She cracked. This is a 35 Whalen, 200 grain weight bullets. Everything's perfect. And then she crashes into a tree and then slams down on the ground. But she was, and I just kept my rifle trained on her and she, while she was laying there bleeding out and wheezing and breathing and wheezing and breathing and wheezing and breathing. And I just thought, oh, like the minutes felt like days as this thing took time to expire. And this was well into, well into my career as a slaughter mm. man. And, and I mm -hmm. kind of gave me some time to think about that. Is, is th but there's no other way to go, in, in, in my opinion. The, I mean, something that you can hope for is al also if the bullet does damage to the cardiac aorta, the big three-eighths inch yep. or five-eighths inch garden hose uh, along the t like that comes out of the top of the heart. If as soon as you uncork that, uh, when we go to to bleed an animal on the kill floor, um, there's the insurance uh, slash, which is behind the ear and across the jugulars. That's just an insurance slash to make sure if the animal stands up, it will get woozy and won't stand up for very long. But but the real the serious slash is one that goes uh, along uh, like longitudinally along the um, trachea into the thoracic cavity, and then if you flick your knife in a certain way, you can just go bunk, and it it, it look the blood comes out of the throat like someone's kicked over a five gallon pail of red paint, hmm. and there's something like really really final about that as as a service to the animal uh, once it's been. So it's it's had its brain scrambled by a 22 Magnum and it's completely desensitized, but you do slash slash and then dunk, and then the blood uh, just gushes out of it, and you're like, okay, it's absolutely over when that happens if you can get yeah. that uh, that cardiac aorta, uh, and then so so if you if you kind of study the animal when you're when you're field dressing it as a novice hunter, I recommend taking your time uh, to learn about the. Um, the way that everything's put together in, in the thoracic cavity, where where and like, it's a little CSI Miami uh, crime scene. Uh, uh, my my interest in crime scenes uh, comes out, but it's I think it's important to sort of check out where your bullet hit and sort of assess what you could have done better with each shot because uh, we could talk about mi millions like quartering away and quartering towards and straight on shots. Uh, which shots you pass and and which which shots that you're like I, I'm confident I can take that shot Understanding yeah because one of the most dangerous ones are those quartering shots where you catch the front part of the lobe of one lung the thick part closest to the front shoulder but the bullets diagonally traveling traveling and clips yeah. the back part of the back lobe of the far lung which is very very thin which means that that like 90% of the capacity of that second lung is still working. And if the bullet doesn't get out of the body or it leaves through the, um, yeah, like through, through the back end, through the stomach, like through the, uh, goes through the, the, um, um, the, the diaphragm, you know, the thoracic cavity itself can still sort of be intact. And that animal can go a freaking long, yep. long ways working off of kind of like lung one one decent yeah. decent lung right so um yeah there's there's definitely definitely ethics there archery hunters know like you always kind of want that perpendicular get the thick part of both lungs for for the quickest for, for the animal to expire
Yeah, we did do. Uh, we have done some archery hunting with compound bows uh, for the From the Wild series. And in my personal life, I put one arrow in an animal once and uh, wounded it severely, uh, mm. mortally wounded it. And we spent the next six hours tracking and putting an end to this mule deer buck down in southern Alberta. And I thought, I'm probably good. <laughs> like, I'm good. <laughs> it, was, it was wildly uh, exciting and a huge accomplishment to get to within 30 yards of a bachelor group of, of these bucks that were bedded down. It was the ultimate game of hide and go seek. And it, it felt like a real true physical accomplishment for me. So I like, I, I mean, you know, up until I took the shot and it didn't die immediately. And then we had this, um, we had this situation on our hands and that wasn't desirable for us or for the, or more, more, it uh, wasn't desirable for the buck that was bleeding out with this arrow sticking out of its spine, at, like far back. Um, so anyway, we because it's the prairies, we were able to find it, and we 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 backed out of there. We came back after lunch, and Kevin's dad was with us, and he's been a bow hunter for a million years, so he knew exactly where to look and where where that buck ought to be standing. And so sure enough, it was a mile and a half away, and we could glass it. So we glassed it, and then put on several different approaches while this thing is running and jumping. With, with guts hanging out of uh, the arrow wound in its stomach. And I'm just like, we have to... Like, I said to Ian, can we just get a rifle and shoot it? I'll pay the fine. And he's like, no, <laughs> that's, that's against regulations. This isn't rifle season. It's... it's, it's, yeah. it's uh, and so I realized that, like, I, we spent a lot of time, uh, like, practicing aiming and tar target shooting. And, and then also, was the shot reckless? No, the shot wasn't reckless, sir. Uh, we were 30 yards. It was my lethal range. It turned broadside. I, I had a 90-degree perpendicular shot. For whatever reason, that you know, the arrow went further back than what would have been ideal, and the animal yep. didn't die for six or eight hours yep, uh, after yeah. we had put we put three more arrows into it. Um, I mean, it's a difference between an arrow that's traveling 295 feet per second and a bullet that's traveling at 2,950 feet per second, right? Like the slightest little bit of movement um Absolutely. an elk i got a few years ago was at eight yards um walked by in front of me but he was moving at kind of like a like he, he was meaning to get somewhere which was my partner who was the other bull he was meaning to get there to kill him so the bull was was like moving along like kind of like cool. strongly striding because he was trying to get to, to my partner who we thought the other bull was eight yards right behind the front shoulder. And by the time eight yards, the bull had moved forward about a foot and the arrow caught like the back third of, the, of both lungs. Um, and he, he didn't know what happened. We cow called and he was actually came back, which is one of the things like when we talk about stress and ethical killing that I like about archery, there's no, there isn't this explosion in this perfectly serene environment to scare the living hell out of you. It was just kind of like a, and, and they kind of look around like, what the hell was that? Like they're looking down, yeah. like there's some little like porcupine underneath them or a bee, bee nest or, you know, something like that. And then sometimes they're like, okay, there's no danger. <clears throat> that was kind of weird. Um, oh, there's a cow calling. So this bull had this arrow in it. He comes back, he's looking around and he's like, well, I don't know. I don't see another elk standing here. This is kind of weird. And then he kind of, he trots off. We sat down and about 20 minutes later, 
below us in the forest, you hear crash, 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 as he, as he tumbles. He, right. he, he dropped, he bled out inside, and then he tumbled and, yeah. and rolled. So about 20 minutes. But at, at eight yards, walking by in front of me, like that was a foot difference of like the front part of the thick part of both lungs to the back part where it was, you know, not, not quite optimum. And um, so, so there, is, there is a few challenges. I've had an arrow <clears throat> twice now go into the deer from a tree stand, which should have just went like thunk, thunk right through. And the arrow went in behind the front shoulders and completely turned 90 degrees and went diagonally through and came out through, one, one actually came out through the hind quarter of the deer, completely exited. But the arrow actually twisted inside the deer, like they got that much flex, like a hockey stick, right? Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't create that double hole in the thoracic cavity, massive hemorrhaging and bleeding, but this deer, this big white-tailed buck, managed to run about 300 yards from the tree stand before it, it collapsed. Right. Um, so, so yeah, weird, weird things can happen with arrows. Um, but then, man, sometimes they can keel over as quickly, you know, as as a bullet. They're they're that efficient. So, so. Well, and I think that on the other side of things, you can be overconfident with a rifle, and I think that that, as much as, you know, deflection and 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 subtle movement with an arrow or the length of time it takes to kill an animal, with, uh, for an animal to die s from a double stab wound, um, maybe a detraction or something to consider, uh, for the archery hunter to consider. I think that what, I, what we saw a lot of in taking wild game at the slaughterhouse, so not just the ones that we shoot, but uh, we, we would be open in taking wild game during hunting season and processing those animals into sausage and steaks and roasts and stuff for people. Um, but, but I think just an overconfidence that I can shoot 600 yards and no, you can't <laughs> and, <laughs> like, uh, I can shoot while the animal's on the run and like, no, this, you know, you'd see an animal that was clearly shot poorly. And then you look at the quality uh, of the meat, the bruising and the damage and the, like there's three legs blown off and six holes in the, in the neck and the, and the, and the loins and stuff that, um, it just makes you feel really bad for maybe where we're at uh in in hunting uh, as a as a sport and where we could probably do a little better on on training of young hunters i think that the internet has probably made it worse because if i see a guy dressed up in camo fatigues and has a cool backpack and has a gun that looks like it's got a silencer on it and he's like there's sort of this super macho uh, attitude about hunting that you just go out and then you just you just kill these animals and there's very little preparation that a young hunter maybe has to do unless unless they dig deeper and find those uh, yeah yeah you go boom and it falls over yeah and boy there have been quite a few people in in sort of a broader circle around me that uh maybe they were influenced uh, from something that they saw on tv or, or a little bit of from the wild and they're like i'm gonna go hunting too and it's and and you know me i'm an old guy now so i'll say like well what did you do um, for becoming comfortable with shooting your rifle in every different position. And like, well, I didn't, didn't even go to the range. I'm picking it up at Cabela's on my way out. <laughs> and you're <laughs> like, holy cow. Like, hey, do you want to meet up? Hey, do you guys want to, do you want to meet up with us and bring your knives? Yeah. You know, you can help gut the ant. I'm like, no, thanks. I'm busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
uh, that the, the lack of preparation because the, the industry makes you think that um, all you have to do is spend more money to buy the whiz, the whiz bang uh, rifle caliber or the five feet per second faster bow and then it'll just do the work for you. And there's nothing that could be further from the truth. No, um, absolutely. Th like gear is, a, <laughs> it's like a mirage. It's like, a, it's, I think that I understand uh, companies want to make money and I understand there's a lot more markup in clothing there than there is in, uh, uh, in ammunition or whatever, but uh, I kind of don't like the gimmick and the Americanization and mil militarization that's happened uh, to hunting and the influences from, from the U.S. that's come to Canada that, where my, the old men in my family, the old uncles yeah. and the generation, even of my grandpa's generation, uh, were more along the lines of subsistence hunters and, and like Métis hunter, hunters or, or hunters that would be trapping and they would shoot an animal to eat uh, as, what do you, like, as like a bycatch. Whereas I think that the trophy hunting world and, uh, and also the, the, profit <laughs> the profit department store world is more sophisticated in the United States. And so they know that like, not everybody is ever even going to go hunting, but everyone can wear a camouflage hoodie. And so, so they kind of cloudy, they, they kind of murky the waters for the, the young person who wants to get in touch with the land. Uh, and become a, a, a hunter or a fisher fisherman, fisher person, I guess. Uh, to engage in the sport, it seems overwhelming and really, really expensive. And I would say that what makes a good hunter is practice. Uh, rifles are, you can buy a 1970s used rifle, and they're the best rifles in the world, in my opinion. And, and you can buy a caliber mm -hmm. that's the most, the most lethal caliber in the world. I'm going to tell your listeners from a professional killer, a paid killer. The most lethal caliber here it is fellas and and ladies uh it's the one that you can shoot effectively period and the gun counter salesman person isn't necessarily going to tell you uh that <laughs> and and isn't really going to get into a conversation with you around uh what caliber you can comfortably shoot or uh what caliber you could train with and then build up to uh, a high-powered centerfire rifle these aren't conversations that are being had. If you need to make as many gun sales as you can as quickly as possible, and you're going to try and move the brand um, that offers the highest margin or the, for the store, yeah. or the, the highest margin or the best uh, discount, if you move so many Remingtons, you get a you know. Yeah. I didn't work cooler. in a gun. Exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> uh, the 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 case for terminal ballistics and terminal performance is a great search term in Google. And if you, if you type those words in to say that how, how does my gun and bullet, with the caliber selection and the bullet construction uh, affect uh, terminal performance on target? And there's a lot more research than you'd think on that topic. And it may seem a little bit too nitty gritty, mm. but Jesus, we live in a culture where folks would, would spend hours on the internet researching their, what brand of sneaker or hiking boot to wear but they don't know a fucking thing about what caliber they're even shooting. A lot of people won't even know the caliber of the rifle that they're carrying. <laughs> <laughs> and that makes me sad. And it's evidenced by if you're, if, you know, if, if, uh, if you're a meat cutter, uh, you know that most people don't do a good job uh, shooting the animal and they don't do a good job of carcass uh, cleanliness and care. Um, 
and just sort of generally food hygiene is at a really low, like overall I'd give it an F in, in our area of the province. That's not to say that you guys don't go out and do a really good job cleaning or the next guy, you know, there, there's the old timers that are experienced hunters. No, I've seen a lot of that stuff in yeah. butcher shops during hunting season. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you, you could take a look at a, at, a, at, a, at a hunting outfit and you can tell they're going to do a good job. And, and, and usually we're right. And then you can tell an outfit that has all the whiz bang. A, a, uh, moose, a moose is black on the outside, but it shouldn't be black on the inside. Well, man, like I, I, uh, so Jeff, I, my grandparents had a taxidermy shop for 40 plus years and my first job, I, I worked at the taxidermy shop until my first couple years out of high school. So I was there from, I, I was over 10 years at this taxidermy shop and the amount of animals that would come in just hides or carcasses or mo mostly hides and heads that people would just turn in. It's like, I don't want to skin this out cause I don't want to do anything bad. The amount of, of deer and elk that were cut off basically at yeah. the at the shoulder blades and you had the whole neck in there, like the whole roast, and it's it's done because it's been sitting in the guy back of the guy's truck in the sun for three or four days. Or you peel the hide open on a bear and there's like like honestly, like I remember like three inch thick slabs of meat when i was yeah. fleshing hides meat, on the flesh and pole they get, they get an like too. three inch slabs <laughs> yeah. of meat coming the, off the ribs and yeah. just the stuff that people and these are and people that that's a, a, have been doing it for their whole life and they're bringing in you know the there's 10 pounds of meat on the neck that they're the they're not getting right or there's there's this and that and just um, and you know, guys would be cutting. I've I've seen as, as people as come in with animals where they cut them off and, at the and, and, and at the, you know, the lower elbow, and it's the whole bottom shank, for all four shanks. Over a domestic, uh, just gigantic like, juggernaut yeah. of a truck, because I think Toyota. Can yeah, be, it's like holy smokes. And, and I'm, I'm trying to like massage your sponsor, but kind yeah. of. Yeah, they're easier to get unstuck too because they don't weigh four tons. Well, yeah, I mean, and so that's sort of we're having fun with Toyota a little bit, but th there are vehicles that are not meant to go anywhere near off roads or even on onto gravel roads. And, uh, and, and people are li like a 10,000 pound one ton diesel is a tough vehicle to be effective as a, as a, as a wild game pursuit vehicle. I don't mean to pursue wild game, but I mean to pursue the sport. There's such a thing as too much, <laughs> uh, yeah. too, too big a caliber for you to shoot effectively. So, so, and I would say that's probably one of the biggest mistakes that people make is that if I want to kill it better, I will shoot a bigger caliber. And I would say, Jesus, please, no, never. That everyone, even big old, I'm 6'2", I'm 2 something, you know, more than 220 pounds. And I would not shoot a rifle with more than 24 foot pounds of uh recoil velocity oh i was going to say uh there's a resource on the internet if you type in terminal velocity or terminal ballistics or terminal performance of bullets um chuck hawks was a oh yeah he's awesome. amazing 
Oh God. And all, all so, the people that write under the Chuck Hawks name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I use the ballistic chart to, to explain a, a, a lot of things about what I was doing wrong in, in, in my field shooting uh, because it gave you my accounting brain and my spreadsheet brain. I, I could take different calibers and look for a, a caliber that had a like a sufficient grain weight of bullet available but also provided the least amount of recoil uh, of felt oh, yeah. recoil for the shooter. And yeah, I think military weapons are their calibers are based on that recoil energy and there's also the recoil speed, the speed at which it comes yeah. back into your sh shoulder. Uh, as well as the, the foot pounds that it delivers back because I think it was something like once it gets over 17 or 18 pounds can't remember what the speed is it creates a, f a flinching mechanism in the shooter and so that's why all military weapons were like the 308s and the 6.5s and, and that sort of caliber because they're actually pretty low um, recoil that it's slamming back at you at and keeps you not being scared of your your weapon and more more accurate so that's right he preached bullet placement bullet placement bullet placement and so if you're going to flinch if you can't ha handle the weapon well uh, also the weight of the rifle uh, affects the speed at which that rifle comes back into your shoulder yeah. so when i w researched to death the one gun cabinet solution was a seven millimeter remington magnum in a uh, it was a, a, a Remington 700 Sendero bull barrel, 26 inch. And yeah. why did I choose that? Because uh, it was a 13 pound gun unscoped without a sling. And you're like, that's the stupidest. It was, it was not fun to carry, like even on a sling or quadding with it. it. I remember I'd had bruised kidneys where the trigger guard would, beat, would punch me in the back every time I went over a bump. It was a big heavy rifle. But because it was 13 pounds plus a scope, it's like 14, 15 pounds or whatever. Um, I was shooting little 120, 140 grain weight bullets at a ridiculous uh, velocity, and it, there was no felt recoil at all out of a 26-inch bull barrel. So I'm not a target or bench shooter, but I just knew that I wanted the combination of a heavy gun mm. with enough powder and, and a velocity generated uh, at a certain grain weight bullet that could run the gambit from like antelope or white-tailed deer like all the way up to bull moose. And for me, the one gun cabinet solution for a guy my size was a seven millimeter Remington Magnum, but I didn't want to develop flinch and I didn't want to develop uh, like a, like not want to shoot it all the time. And so this thing was uh, what my, my grandpa friend down the road, it's a, it was a pussycat to shoot. Just snurp, 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 snurp. It was beautiful because <laughs> it was so freaking, it was heavy. And then since then I've evolved and, and it was, it was deadly. And I could just sort of swing the, the great big barrel uh, and the crosshairs, I'd, I'd drag across the body of the animal through center of mass, and I'd just swing it across to the left and swing it across to the right and exhale and then, and then hold my breath and then just, just press the trigger and snurp. It was the most murderous of all guns that I've ever had, the most su success of, uh, of all rifles. However, at close range and in thick brush, uh, it, like it could shoot at range, but, but it wasn't great at close encounters. Okay. Because yeah. it, was, it was long, yeah. it was long, heavy, and high velocity. So, yeah. so huh. uh, a white-tailed deer at close range, even shooting an easily deformed bullet like a pointed soft point, rather than a more structured like barn, Barnes X all copper or whatever the hell they're called, I'd shoot a 
a really cheap bullet at white-tailed deer because a, po a pointed soft uh, pointed soft point lead. But if you hit it within two hundred within a hundred yards, you shoot a white-tailed deer. The bullet wouldn't deform because it, it was going so fast it didn't have time. It'd be in in and out of the deer, and there'd be a pencil-sized hole on entrance mm -hmm. and exit uh, that was really easy to plug up with fat. So getting blood trails off that gun wasn't so good. So I evolved into a three-gun cabinet with a small caliber. The smallest legal caliber for big game in Alberta is a 243. A middle caliber, which I've yet to buy, but it'd be a 7mm .08. And then the big caliber is a 35 Whalen. Uh, probably, I have 308s as well. So mid-caliber, probably 308. And then a, 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 yeah. a big bore yeah. is a 35, 35 Whalen. Uh, right now, I, I use a 35 Whalen for almost every... I mean, for any game that's not white-tailed deer. White-tailed deer gun is the 243. And the 35 Whalen sounds like this big bruiser of a round, but if you look at the ballistics, um, it's a 30-odd-6 uh, cartridge necked up to 35, and it is the perfect bear moose brush gun. Uh, and when I shoot a bear or a moose, I like to cut the distance down to like under 100 yards, and then it's already 0.35 of an inch going in, and it comes out like a loony. Yeah. So it's got a yep. lot of power, it hasn't got the best ballistics in the world, but that challenges me as a hunter to get closer to the animal. And, and there's like a double win on getting closer to the animal when it comes to humane kill and, and animal carcass recovery is if I'm closer, I get more bullet deformation, so a larger wound channel. If I'm closer to the animal, I have all that time to stock up to it and better identify it so that for sure I'm not seeing a boar black bear when it's actually a sow, <laughs> you know? I don't yep. want to shoot a sow with cubs. So the more time I spend with eyes on the prize and like moving towards it, I'm closer to it. If I'm closer to it, it's, it's it yeah. occupies more of my my reticle, my 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 exit pupil on my scope. So I have, it's like you know, aim small, miss small. Donnie Wahlberg, I think, some kind of a <laughs> yep. American war movie. But you could pick out the hair on the back of his elbow and then just go to you know just go to the left or you know just go behind that elbow. And then you can pick out hairs when you're 75 to 50 yards away from that black bear as opposed to 250 or 350. So I think that a fatter, stouter bullet um, and then making yourself be a better hunter and get closer in range is, is a better hunting technique for fewer wounded animals, uh, more humane kills, and more anchored, anchored kills. That is yeah. when you shoot an animal and it falls... Kevin, he, Kevin shoots a 30-odd-6 for everything. And I think it's a pretty good one-gun caliber, provided you don't stretch the range the ranges too far. And he's comfortable with it, which is probably the most important thing. No, um, totally. So it'll, it, it'll take all manner of game as long as you shorten that range. And living on the farm, shooting at coyotes all winter, as I do, uh, to harvest... Uh, I'm making the world's slowest king-size coyote blanket. It also <laughs> turns out... Also turns out the most expensive blanket with more holes than any blanket that's ever... <laughs> it's more <laughs> of an Afghan. It's more of a coyote Afghan. I've got, like, I think, 10 hides now. So I take them to Edmonton Fur Tanners. I shoot a coyote that eats bait in my yard and out the bedroom window most often. Uh, we have a predator problem. There's, there's thousands of them, and they terrorize the dogs, and they steal chickens, and they f screw with our goats. So um, there's no shortage of coyotes out here, and it keeps me sharp in the off-season to shoot these coyotes at 150, 250, 350. And I use a 243 for those coyotes, which leaves two kind of a big hole. Pretty big hole, eight, man. 80, 87 grain <laughs> weights. 
And there's some kind of, like, I don't cheap out on ammo. That's another tip is, like, do not cheap out on ammo. And then understand your ammo and don't just accept what the sporting goods store has on the shelf. Go to a different sporting goods store or, like, like put a little bit of planning into your hunt and make sure that you have enough ammo to shoot a box every month for three or four months before the season. Get to the range and shoot three or four boxes. Clean yeah, your gun. Yeah, absolutely. And then absolutely. be ready for this then be ready for the start of the season with that same goddamn ammunition, the same grain weight, the same manufacturer. Um, if you run out the day before your hunt and get a box of ammo that you're not familiar with, even if just the composition or the manufacturer is different, but the grain weight's the same, the caliber's the same, it's going to shoot quite a bit differently. And then those same people will take a shot at 225, or they won't range it. And they'll think it's 200 yards, and it's actually 300 yards. So ranging is also a miserable thing that you can only get good at by practicing. Um, so yeah. buying a more expensive gun or a bigger caliber, a fancier gun, or even debating whether to shoot for the head or the center of mass. I'd always say shoot at the center of mass anyway, but having those debates seems a bit um, uh, excessive or like, like you're, it's splitting hairs at those levels. If you're not, if you're not shooting, f I don't know, four or five boxes. Like, I don't know in this city how guys it's just such an ordeal to get to a range. It's like a whole weekend or a whole Saturday to get to the range. Uh, and to do that four or five times before season and do some preseason scouting to see where you're going to hunt, it's quite a commitment. And so I, uh, kudos to the folks that do it well, that live in rural centers or urban centers and, and, and make the time to, to take those trips. It's, it's a thousand percent easier for me because I can have a range in my back or I have a range in my backyard. So I can go out every day this week and just and fire a box of 20 in different calibers even just to get comfortable with shooting a rifle in different positions yeah so, well, so those are definitely all super important to the conversation of of humane killing absolutely now here's here's one this this is switching switching brain cells a little bit so curtis and i were talking about this uh a l little while ago and it's this it's this idea about what the expectations are for humans as hunters when we kill, the expectations of society for these quick, humane kills, mm -hmm. and the way nature really does it. And there's not a, there's not a whole lot in nature that, that one thing kills another thing, and it's instantaneous. Like there's this, there's this difference between predator and prey, and it and it, it takes a bit um, to to kill the animal, you know, bring it down and and get it to you know black out or or, or bleed out or die or whatever. It's it's a, it's a long drawn out process, but but that's not what what we aim for as humans, whether it's in the slaughterhouse or whether it's hunting, and and I've often. Th thought about this not not that i'm advocating for going out there and m making the whole process of shooting an animal like prolonged and and, and long and stuff because you want to be part of nature and hunters are part of nature so let's kill kill like nature we're, we're different that way but but f sort of philosophically i'm kind of like but nature's meant for that there's something inherent in the system of nature and evolution where killing is not supposed to be meet these tidy rules. It's it's a messy thing in nature. But we have a different set of expectations for ourselves, and 
we feel horrible. You know, like you want to quit hunting when it's not, doesn't go that well. Why do you think that is? Like, why have we got this different set of rules when nature has said these are the rules for killing? Huh. Uh, the opposable thumb and the, the morality that comes along with this giant brain makes us think, because we, we can do it well without, we can limit suffering, so we do. Uh, with our tools and our moral compass, our brain's big enough to have somewhat of a moral compass in some of us sometimes. And so we want to make the death quick and as quick and I mean, quick and painless as uh, and as as possible, uh, because we can get at jug givers and we understand the anatomy of the prey. Um, but I I agree with you that I think that you know internet and YouTube culture, I'm shocked and kind of appalled that what they can, what folks can get away with for pu publishing videos of animals taking down other animals in the wild. For example, for, for example, yep. our friends at Nature is Metal or hashtag Nature is Metal. I just watched a, a male lion k attack a hippo. So the algorithm knows the things that I pause over. And I guess I pause over, among other things, I pause over an these anim animal videos. Yeah, whenever there's a hippo, I'm like, wow. <laughs> and uh, there's this lion trying to kill a hippo. And you think, like, 50 years ago, you think, yeah, probably lions kill hippos. I don't know. Or maybe they don't. They're just too big. And then in the digital age where everybody's got a cell phone camera and there's safaris more, more than ever in, in history, <laughs> animals are being watched. And, and you have this lion attack a hippopotamus. And I think this is going to be bad for the hippopotamus and bad for the lion. And it's going to take hours and hours. We, we know that, uh, it's a long story, but one time a rancher who ranches bison brings me a big, the cape of a gigantic bison. And uh, he says, you want to buy this? I need some money. <laughs> I said, so I thought about it and uh, called him back and said, oh, yeah, I'll buy this. I, I always want to get a taxidermy bison mount. This is, a, this is a, a big bull that he had for 15 years, and it was humongous. And so he dropped it off at the shop, and I drove there that night, and I had the staff give him a cash out of the cash drawer, and I had this bison in the back. But the skull was still inside the bison's uh, cape. So he had caped it behind the, somewhere like behind the front shoulders, and he'd done a good job caping it. But he left the skull and he's like, I left the skull for you. I got a text with a tee hee hee icon emoji or whatever. So I took about 10 of the sharpest knives in the shop and they were all, they were all like spoons after I was done getting this skull out of that bison because his lips were, his, the, the cartilage around his lips on this thing was probably three inches thick. His hide was two and a half, three inches. Like a, a big bull in the, in the bovine world, they build a, as, as do hogs, like we have feral hogs out here, Russian razorbacks. And when we had a domestic pig, our breeder boar, when I killed him, the same thing. They all have this armor built around their front ends. And it's a knife dulling. It, like, I don't know in the wild how an animal would bite a big bull bison on the front or around the shoulders and ever get down to blood. Because there's three inches of hide and hair. Th and, and then another two or three inches of compressed hair that you have on to, to get through. Anyway, Nature's Metal has a video up of this lion wrestling with a, a big hippo hippo and you think the lion would i mean we're just made we're just like uh what do you call it like donair meat we're like kebabs we don't have any protection hardly at all <laughs> but you have an animal in the wild with an inch and a half of skin and i always marvel at that i say to my kids when they're helping on this on the kill floor when we had that proud cut steer that had testosterone we get a bull every once in a while i'm like take a look at the hide on this on this uh on this bull 
and it's a ama- aren't hormones amazing that this thing has like for the, for the because it has a testicle back there its hide is grown to an inch thick and then we'll skin a heifer or a steer out and it's and its hide <laughs> is a quarter of an inch thick but bull hide <laughs> is crazy and to think that an animal just with mm-hmm. teeth and tusks teeth and tusks or claws are pretty ineffective against skin that's an inch thick or two inches thick or, or two and a half inches thick. Um, so it, you're right, sorry, I'm, it was like a huge tangent there, but um, you think about the drawn out, uh, the time to draw out the death when animals kill animals. It, it would be hours or days or weeks. I, well, I, I think that because we have the gift of this brain and these opposable thumbs and chemistry and a bit of science, the f- like I, I, always, I always think like, when we can make a kill clean and immediate, it's kind of like you're welcome. That, and th- thank you for offering your life and your body that I'm going to consume and my family's going to consume. I'm so grateful yeah. that we have animals to consume. But also, like, you're kind of one of the lucky ones. If if I if you reversed, yeah, you kind of won the lottery. Yeah. But see yeah. that that's where that's where I kind of like just thinking this from an evolutionary perspective. The animal doesn't want to die. It's it's not like people going, you know, I've lived a good old good life and the wolf bit my leg off and I only got three and I've done all my breeding. It's like I just wanna like go to sleep and die in my sleep one day. It's like they don't. They are hardwired you won the lottery almost. where they're gonna kick and scream to the very last second because they're programmed to live. Um and anything that happened to them, like a mortal wound or like whatever, they're like, I'm not giving up. I don't feel sorry for myself. And and so like the concept of like, you know, like quick and everything, it's like that works for us and makes us feel good because we go, it didn't know what happened. But it, I almost kind of feel like it wants to know what's happening because <laughs> it wants to resist as much as possible because that's its very nature nature says death is not going to be quick and you are programmed to resist it as as much as possible um, but we fit into this very differently and i think we fit into it because of the opposable thumbs and big brains and we sit around and think too much and we need to feel good about ourselves when we kill things <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, I, we put we put ourselves in their shoes. <laughs> I I think you're we're as humans we are projecting what would if this animal was a human what would that so if if you're like if i was to shoot another human i it, you know, or if i was to be shot i would want it to be quick i wouldn't want to know what's happening maybe because we're so far diverged from that pure wild carnage but like i was out ice fishing the other day yeah i was out ice fishing the other day and we caught a couple perch and no i totally the believe throw that because perch and are we invasive had one perch here that Honestly, for I like a good a... hour and a half after we we put a knife yeah. through the skull of this. Yeah, it's like Monty Python. It's nothing. Mere like flesh wound on the ice, like yeah. just knife in the floppy. skull. 
flop, 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 flop. Like, I'm going to get back in the water like a, and go go breed me some baby fish. To try yeah, to like get that like, thing to flop back man, in the hole, just, and if it gets back so, in the hole, maybe it's yeah, maybe maybe that's it. Maybe we're away, we're right? thinking about that. If it was us, we'd want to go quickly. Like. If I'm yeah, out there it's like grazing on the cut line in the evening, I'm like, into them. I want Even Jeff to shoot me dead, they're still with his 14 for pounds, 7 mm, like and, uh, and I don't know what happened. I hope he's not using a bow tonight. <laughs> yeah. like, like maybe that's where this whole concept of yeah. humane came from is, is how would you want to be killed as, another, as, as, a, as a person, not how nature delivers it. human it's a perspective yeah And, and I think it's in the word itself, oh, yes. humane. It's like, you know, it's probably a Latin derivative of human. Oh, totally. And, and you've seen you the know, suffering and cruelty are too human thought up. You've seen the video of uh, the herd there's, of bison, I mean, like in Yellowstone or whatever, they're thundering through the snow and the wolves are chasing them, and the one faster one comes along and thought, bonks the one oh and makes goodness, them fall down, so and all the wolves jump on him. Oh, it was kind of like, what that wolf yeah, man, there's no, over there that was right beside you know, one cruel. for all like, and humane killing. It's human made empathy and stuff in wild animals. It's they don't think they're suffering. They just know I I made the wrong decision, and this is it. I'm I'm toast. Like. Oh yeah. Plows into the other one. <laughs> like right right before this podcast, sorry, this is a little bit of a tangent, but going back to the the survivability and the 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 pure instinct of these animals. Uh, my girlfriend Paige showed me this video and she's like, oh, this is crazy. Check this out. And it was in Africa and there was a leopard on a gazelle and you could see that the leopard had its its mouth around the, the throat of the gazelle and it was obviously like compressing the esophagus and and suffocating it. And this hyena comes running in and starts like nipping at the back end of this gazelle and the leopard turns around and starts taking a swipe at this Hyena. Off it runs. And then it chases the hyena off. The hyena deeks around, comes back, tries to nip a little bit again, and then the, the leopard, it's kind of this back oh, and forth crazy. between. That's crazy. And then in the whole meantime, so what, because one of the last ones I want to touch on here, Jeff, get anymore. your thoughts it was on this. Obviously is, blacked out because it was completely limp and I think it's dead. Philosophy around it kinda like comes killing to fish. The I mean, I know you guys fish and do a lot of ice fish. And as this hyena and leopard are fighting back and forth, the camera pans over and this gazelle pops up. I did some research on the EKG runs off killing fish, which is the thing was out cold. It was it was also about meat preservation and longevity of of fish meat um, dates back thousands of years in japan and it's a it's a method where they take a like a piercing needle and they immediately pierce it into the brain 
of the fish, which causes instant brain death. It no longer knows what's going on. But a fish, it's, and well, in mammals, the spinal cord is an extension of the brain. It's still part of the brain. And, and in a fish, the, the spinal cord is still trying to run the body. And like Curtis said, it's trying to flop the fish and get it back, back into the water. But all of that ac nervous activity is releasing um, adrenaline and cortisol into the meat, which affects the meat quality and actually makes it taint quicker uh, when, you're, when you're trying to store it. So then they quickly do this thing where they, they t turn the needle and push it through into the top of the spinal cord. And then on the inside of the needle, they run this long um, stainless steel wire down and destroy the spinal cord, instantly causing all of that nervous activity that's firing the muscles to stop. They cut the gills, start the bleed out process, and put it into water so it bleeds out quicker. And, and like they do that all, all very quickly. And it's instant, it's humane with a fish, uh, and stuff I've seen, they've done studies where they, they put the meat side by side in a fridge and it's like, it lasts for weeks because it doesn't have all those chemicals in it. But my experience is here anyways, like people just catch a fish and then they walk around, they hold it, it flops around on the boat, they throw it on the ice and it suffocates and freezes, freezes to death. What do you guys do? How, how do you approach the topic of fish in the oh, show yeah. that's a great question uh early on uh fishing we said why wouldn't we do the same like it, it, it's weird uh, why would we do the same thing or offer the same service to the fish as we would for a mammal is it because the fish is ugly and we grew up through the 70s and 80s fishing with our dads and grandfathers and family where the fish would just be thrown off the hook onto the ice and it would just flop around there f until it died i remember just post-traumatic stress of uh, the, the gutting stations, cleaning fish around Alberta and Saskatchewan lakes and seeing the fish's uh, gills opening and closing that it's breathing while my dad or uncle is, is cutting the fillet off the fish. And that was just normal. And I, I don't know, they didn't know better and they didn't think about it. I, I do like what you said, that if the nervous system in a fish is different from ours and that had more to do with the spine, uh, residual spine activity uh, than, than the brain. But it always bothered me. And so as a grown, as, as a, fishing on my own as a grown-up uh we'd always just hammer a knife through the skull or use a fish bat to break their skull and, and sometimes overdoing it and then bleed them through the gills and yep. kevin had read uh, read about the improving meat quality and and the swampiness of jackfish uh coming out and those little black veins in a cooked fillet like after you cook a fillet you can see these little black veins and not as much when you when you gill them and they bleed all over the place so just like on the kill floor and the practice of, um, of bleeding a uh, beef animal while the heart's still pumping to improve the meat, the preservation and the meat quality and uh, reduce any spoilage of the meat by letting the heart and the muscles pump all the blood out of a beef that's harvested domestically, um, we do that with wild game and, uh, and our fish. And then we talked in one of the episodes we were fishing about, like imagine, you know, 99% of the fish consumed in the world um, gets netted and thrown into, or netted and, and suffocates underwater for no, you know, they, they, they die thrashing around in a net or they're hauled live into a boat and they're just put on ice immediately and then just die again through suffocation, which wouldn't be really pleasant death. So it's funny in that 
is the flavor of the fish that we enjoy from the grocery store or that have been netted in mass or commercially fished, um, what's the quality of that animal food product compared to uh, the lovingly, like if you're cradling your perch in your arms, uh, Curtis, and, <laughs> and singing it a lullaby, poking its head in its spine and then twisting, you know, like twisting it back and forth and giving it a little, little kiss <laughs> and, bleed, and, and, then, and then bleeding it out, like the, the loving kindness method. And like, I think that, like, I think there's really something to that. Uh, certainly, you don't want the animal to suffer. Like, that, that's kind of, we're, we're beyond that uh, topic of conversation. Of course, you want to do it as quickly a, as possible. And then do you do that with uh, fish? And yeah, yeah, of course, why not? Um, but uh, I'll give you one. Oysters, crabs, mussels, uh, lobster. And like, where, I don't mean where do you draw the line, but like, I don't, like, I don't think throwing an oyster into a boiling <laughs> pot of water, like it, it, it does, there's some pause. There's a bit of, there's some, there's a pause there. Even for the slaughter man, I think about the oyster going into boiling water and we kind of hum humanize them. Uh, Curtis had mentioned that earlier, that there's a bit of a Disneyification of that an animal, oughtn't an animal think about life, death and existence the same way that I do. And he's right that the word, if you could speak deer, the word suffering uh, or uh, what did you say about the wolves? Not suffering, but uh, cruelty. Probably doesn't exist in an animal language. Probably the word for that is just nature, the power of nature. Because the, the, the minus 40 was cruel. It was a cruel thing to do to all life is to turn the temperature minus 44 or whatever it was the other week here. Um, but I don't think na nature just marches on. Anim wild animals and even domestic livestock accustomed to this. They're just like, well, just time to get on. They keep on keeping on through that minus 40. And they don't feel sorry for themselves. Um, they they just uh, adapt, I guess, to it. Yeah. So I don't. Yeah. I don't think I don't think the animals thinking, oh poor me, and and uh, that brought up another thing uh, about like on the kill floor. Aren't these animals all terrified that they're going to their death? And after working on the kill floor of this plant in the small community to uh, make available local foods and provide a service for the community, all of these good things, the good reasons we got into it. Um, I think folks that uh, that are curious ab about it, about the process, think that the animals must know that they're about to die. And I, s and I say, I can tell you conclusively mm -hmm. after uh, being involved with the process, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of times, um, that, that in almost 100% of the animals' brains, they have not put together what is about to happen. There's, n there's nothing in nature and there's nothing innate to them uh, that would know that these boards and humans talking and uh, what a rifle does or how ballistics work in a, in a fire. They're not, they're not afraid of a firearm. They're not af they may have been handled with Pete roughly by humans before, so they don't like humans, <laughs> or it's, it's different. Yeah. Like the environment is different, it's not a pasture. So they're confused and they can be casual, con like calm confused, or they can be like upset confused. But I don't think they're thinking, God, I wish I had bred, I had bred that one last cow and I had said goodbye to my calves or anything like that. They're not, they're not thinking about that. They're very much in the present. And I think that there's something beautiful about that. And, and you know, it's a bit sad, um, but th I think they really live in the present. And, and I say almost all of them. I think, there were, I think I, there were two pigs ever in the history of all the animals that I put bullets into them where a pig looked me in the eye and I swear to you, he knew... He knew what was what we were doing. He had watched the pigs ahead of him get. So there's a pig at, ahead of him. This is back in the old days. We had gates. <laughs> so we could, he could see. He could see the pig in line ahead of him. We kind of had a Temple Grandin uh, 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 corridor for these pigs to walk up. And the the knock box for the pig. The the pig behind could see the pig in front. 
that pig had enough brain cells going on there that he saw that pig uh, get shot, then fall down, squeal and thrash around in blood and everything. And so the pig behind was like, oh my God. And like, it really hit me when he looked at me right in the eyes. Generally a pig won't make eye contact, but, uh, or like they won't look you directly in the eyes. I don't, I don't know why. Um, but that pig looked me directly in the eyes, like, like, like a house pet or a dog will sometimes look you in the eyes. <laughs> he looked me right in the eyes and he's like, oh buddy, I know, I know what this is about. <laughs> and I, I made it really quick, but I knew that he knew what it was about. But all of the other ones, I just really don't feel like they have what's, th 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 you know, like they can be uncomfortable. They can be stressed because they're an un... Uh, th 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 and then the other bit was maybe a little bit around elk. So a recently domesticated wild animal that's now farmed for meat and for antlers. Um, the elk do get weird when they smell blood. I don't think they're thinking hmm. like, gosh, that must have been Marsha who I went to, you know, I went... I went to that pasture once before, and I saw, you know, I saw her over a cup of warm urine or whatever. I was sniffing, <laughs> and I I knew her. She was a good she was a good she elk. Good cow. Yeah, she was a good cow. We had great times together. They're not thinking about that and about this is death. I think they just something more recently domesticated will smell blood, and they kind of look around and like the the most that's going on in their brain is like oh fuck, because when you smell that smell, I think it is hardwired into certain animals, just like a shark. Oh, maybe like, I smell. Shark Maybe. smells blood, and he says it's time to eat. There's something I got to go get. Right. So it's a compulsion. It's a compulsion. He doesn't understand how a circulatory system of a fish works. A shark smells blood, and he just goes to it because it's feeding time. So an elk smells blood, and it's like I think it's just like oh oh, and yeah. then they're like they're 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 extra on the defensive. Nothing's hurt them. Nothing's. That's yeah. right. That that they're wired to be like go away from that smell when you smell that smell. Um, so I believe that in the more recently domesticated animals, but because of domesticated animals been bred for so yeah. long, they certainly were not bred for their brains. They were bred for uh, oh. putting on muscle mass. <laughs> not to not to open gates and undo locks and drive farmers' trucks away at two in the morning. No, yeah. no, the, the, the fence the fence jumpers, the fence jumpers, and the ones that can open gates with their lips, they get shot. everybody get in the rig. I'm, I'm not <laughs> yeah. supposed to smell yeah. that. Yeah, it's not quite Animal Farm uh, yet. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, when it comes to wild animals and hunting, it's like, they're, they're not thinking the same thing. And I think if they're thinking anything, they're going, they're going, yeah, go ahead and try. Cause 99.9% .9 of the time we get away. Nice try. I see you over there. I smell you. I know you're here somewhere. Even if you're not, I can just tell something and I'm going to, foil your plans and, and they, they got this level of confidence and arrogance about them that they just go on living this beautiful life and it is funny like i see an elegance and a majesty in their confidence that that they've evolved for all of these years to not have to worry about something that isn't sleeking through the grass and 50 yards away yeah and and, and i think it's like we can use words like majesty and beauty uh, of the buck standing silhouetted against the sky and he just turns sideways and looks at you. The old wily bucks know when hunting season is. And I don't well, think they put together ballistics, but I <coughs> think they know when I start hearing those bangs at night, I better just stay in the bush and only go out at night. They, like, they know they're being find, hunted. Yeah, no doubt. They go nocturnal. They go nocturnal anyway. They, they don't want to yep. be trifled with. They don't want you interfering maybe more with their breeding pattern. You know, like you mess, I think humans mess up their breeding pattern, but... I, we've we talked about that before. Like, how could a deer look at a guy with a rifle, even if they're 
a 10-year-old buck has seen buck standing next to him. They look at a car. Car stops. A guy in a ghillie suit up in a tree. Uh, they notice the guy. And then there's a bang and his buddy falls down. Does he know that... How could you perceive that a bang is associated with a tiny bit of metal flying through space and time <laughs> faster than... Like as fast as an asteroid. As far as, as far as his deer is concerned, there's how would he know? How would he know? He just hears a bang and then his buddy does is no longer part of the herd. Is he gonna say that deer is dead? Is he gonna think, boy, that guy's dead? He ceased to exist. But his spirit has probably lived on. Is that what that buck is thinking? Or possibly he that buck is thinking, it's a time of year where all those bangs happen in the evening and uh, like and sun up and sundown. And that screws up sex. <laughs> what did like they want to eat and they want to have a lot of breeding going on. And so he's so like, they do it with the lights out. Well, they're like, yeah, I'm just going nocturnal because that banging makes the, do the does all run around in circles. Yeah. That makes some of them, some of them disappear sometimes. I don't know what that's about, but the, everybody runs in circles when, when human beings are about making that banging noise for two months or three months and, or one month on the, on the farm WMUs. So I don't know. We've had this debate, like joking. Uh, you know, we get a few whiskeys in us, and we're doing voices about <laughs> one deer says to another deer. Uh, but all the time around animals and livestock and our own horses and dogs and cats, I I think that they we humanize them a bit too much. Even the ones yeah. that are around humans, all the ones that are around humans all the time, like your dogs and cats, your house pets. Um, they they do. It's surprising at how much they can pick up on. Um, but I still don't think they can understand that a tiny 140-grain weight hunk of lead is traveling at 3,000 feet per second towards them and it's going to then disrupt their heart and then they're going to bleed out in the thoracic cavity. Do you know change, what I mean? It's going to ch change, change their life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. What a... Uh, what, this what a is trip. a good conversation. Like, I think you said it earlier. Like, it, it it's good to have and maybe kind of gruesome and gory or whatever, but it's... Uh, I thought it was good. I I, I like the perspectives uh, that that you have and what you do for a business and the fact that you do that respectfully and you care for each one of the the animals and you want them to be comfortable and calm to the very end. And at the end of the day, you're helping put food on families' tables and you feel good about that and. No, oh, that's no different sure. when you uh, go hunting. At, Good. at the end of the day, people are going to eat meat. There are going yeah. to be people that eat meat. Uh, and so let's involve ourselves and in, your family's going to eat meat. Let's involve ourselves in a way as sports enthusiasts or outdoors enthusiasts and uh, and me as a, as a meat producer. Because people are going to eat meat, let's just do it well. Let's do it to the best, the best, the, the best that we can uh, with respect to the animal. And yeah. uh, for the meat processing business, that's many small and spread out. Not one, one big mega is bad. Many small spread out is good. And I think that from, from a, a sporting and outdoors uh, pursuit sort of uh, uh, perspective, uh, it's, it's sort of the same that, the, the, you know, e each hunting family can provide meat or a, s a significant portion of their protein in, in their freezer for their family for the year um, themselves. And then that sort of the intimate relationship and seeing the animal, you know, how it goes means that you end up with a higher quality meat and a higher quality experience and more reverence and thankfulness for the animal giving its life so that we have this food to eat. Yeah, no, absolutely. Good, good final thoughts. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. It was a uh, great, great intellectual topic.
I went, agree. Thank you went everywhere. Much. Started out with beavers. <laughs> oh, beavers. Then to ballistics. Bangs. Breeding. We got it all. There's sex, violence. <laughs> we just, Curtis, just you just need to cue up the rock and roll, buddy. Yeah, we'll get some rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I look forward to having you on again. Pitch us some topics. Go, hey, let's get on and talk about. Anytime, guys. Whatever. Appreciate it. Curtis, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Right on. So, Hunter Conservationist Podcast is sponsored by Alpine Toyota. Anything truck related, car related, new tires, new truck, whatever you need. Make sure you go down and chat with the folks at Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook. Now we're big getting supporters up to close of us, to 10, big yeah. supporters of conservation. Yep. Member, member only uh, content. It's appreciate fun. them with what they're doing for, for us and for conservation. Uh, also, if you are not yet a uh, patreon.com sure slash the Hunter Conservationist podcast. Our patron site. Gets you to and subscribe to Hunter's our Underground exclusive podcast. patron podcast. Sneaky, eh? The Exclusive. Hunters Underground. Lots of cool topics. I think we got, uh, I don't know, how many episodes have we got out now? Nine, ten, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So lots of lots of exclusive content. So uh, make <laughs> totally. sure you go check that out. We'll put that link down in the show notes. But I do believe Great it is conversations. Uh, the Hunter Conservationist slash patron. Hunter Conservationist Perfect. podcast. Thanks. Slash and folks, if you aren't a subscriber to From the Wild on Vimeo On Demand. Yeah. Go uh, become a subscriber. You can also find that Get on the, the Hunter episodes. Conservationist website. See Jeff. Make sure you check John, that out. Five Kevin, bucks a month. Other folks. Goes to supporting us with Doing what just we do, amazing things in the outdoor. about uh, Having fun. <laughs> cooking up some All great meals. Topics we go do. Go back so, to Yeah, thanks to those people that are patron supporters and uh, go check it out. See Jeff explain what the best rocket stove would be. Crotch Absolutely. rocket. Absolutely, that's what it was. You want to see? Yeah. See us You want to see us fricassee up a beaver? You just—I don't even know what episode that was, but we sure—we sure did eat some beaver a couple of times. No. Hi, yeah. Hi. No. I really, really encourage you if you want just some good Canadian outdoor hunting and fishing and cooking and living in the outdoor content that's real. Yeah, making making drinks out of lodgepole pine trees. That's just super cool. Uh, from the Wild series. Um, Jeff is like the star. Um, oh. And cover, producer, director, oh, screenwriter, no. oh. the, the works. No. Just yeah. some hack, you know? Yeah, the, the, the others are like, um, what do they call in the movies? Um, bystanders, stand-ins. Just, yeah, just people that were out in the bush and you're like, hey, buddy, go stand over by that tree, pretend you're hunting. From the Mixology. wild, best Canadian outdoor hunting and fishing show on the market by none. It's our favorite. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. And uh, we will see you all on the next episode.